growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. God uses symbols that are not necessarily literal to teach us literal truth. So some of the symbolism in there, while, while it may not be a literal thing, a literal beast with four heads or a sea of glass, the symbols may not be literal, but they're used to teach us literal truth. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. The book of Revelation is filled with symbolism that's not always easy to discern. That's why we're taking a year to walk through this book and unlock its mysteries and make application for our lives today. If I could give one piece of counsel before I died to someone seeking out uh, the, their, their direction for life or, or the answers to life's questions, if, if I could do one thing, if I could say one word of encouragement, I would say, get in this book. Pour into this book and let this book pour into you because this is where you really meet God, ladies and gentlemen. We're continuing our year-long study in the book of Revelation and today we come to Revelation chapter 17, perhaps one of the most difficult chapters to interpret in the entire book. Jesus has some strong words for someone he calls the great harlot. Just who is this person and why is Jesus' condemnation so strong? The harlot symbolizes all the false religions throughout history, including the Antichrist false religion established during the tribulation period. We'll see that more specifically next week. False religions of the world have led billions away from the one true God, have led billions down a path of darkness. They have caused the peoples of the world to commit spiritual adultery. We're so glad you've joined us as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. If you've been here throughout this series, uh, or you've ever done much study in this particular book itself, I've kind of got a feeling that's what people think sometimes about the book of Revelation. God, why did you have to have John write it the way that he did? I don't understand why you do it that way. God, why do you have to use so much symbolism in this thing? Why couldn't you just just set it plain and and, and then we all could have understood it? And, And why do you have to do it that way? I got a feeling that's what people have thought. I've thought that myself a few times in this year-long study called the Revelation. Um, But I can think of at least a couple of reasons. One is, while it may be hard for us to understand this, uh, remember John, in writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing to encourage the church, the believers, throughout all the ages, from, from the time From his time until this time, until Jesus returns, he's writing to encourage and to instruct uh, all believers so that we'd have greater knowledge. And, And honestly, whether you understand this or not, or whether we fully understand this or not, symbolism often carries better through time than an actual truth might. In other words, uh, what if if he just said this is what it is uh, two thousand years ago, that may have had no concept to people, but by using symbolism, um, they can kind of get a grasp and idea of what he's uh, what he's talking about. So oftentimes, symbolism just communicates better over a longer period of time. Secondly, I was thinking about this. Think how many people, think, think how many hours, think how many people have poured over this book through the years in, in searching out the intended meaning, in searching out the, the truth of the text. Uh, how many 
millions of people, how many millions of hours have been, have been spent in study of this book, seeking to know what God is actually trying to say to us in this text? Why is that important? Why, does, why would God want us to spend so much time in his word? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is where we come to know God. This is it. Well, you're saying a spirit doesn't speak. Yes, he might. You're saying prayer. No, prayer. But this is where you come to know God. This is where you come to know his heart. This is where you come to know who he really is, is in here. This is it. If I could give one piece of counsel before I died, if I could give one piece of advice to someone seeking out uh, the, their, their direction for life or, or the answers to life's questions, uh, should I date, should I not date, who should I marry, should I take this job, should I not take this job, should I take this promotion, which is better, Starbucks or Caribou, what, whatever the question would be, to, to life's questions, if, if I could do one thing, if I could say one word of encouragement, I would say, Get in this book. Pour into this book and let this book pour into you because this is where you really meet God, ladies and gentlemen. I have been a serious student of this book for over half of my life now. I have three earned degrees in this area. And I have discovered that the more I learn, the more I feel like a novice. The, not necessarily the less I feel like I know, but the less I feel like I've, I've, or the more I feel like there's so much more I have to know. There's so much more I, I need to learn. I really at times feel like, you don't, you don't even know anything about the Bible. You stand up there trying to bluff your way through with those people, you don't know anything about the Bible. That's how I feel sometimes, because because of this word, and I was thinking somebody might, might say, well, don't you find that depressing? No, I actually find that exciting. Because it, because it speaks to me about how, how, how great our God is. How, how grand his, his vision and his, his plan is. How, how deep his, his knowledge and his wisdom is. It speaks to me of, of, of just how much God wants me to know. And how much he desires for me to have this intimate relationship with him through his word. So it kind of excites me rather than demoralizes me when I think about how much I've got to learn. So finding the intended meaning of the text is not always easy. And God has his reasons for that. Today, Revelation chapter 17 is one of those texts that is particularly difficult. As a matter of fact, the, the Bible scholar commentator John Walvard, who classic uh, commentary on Revelation, John Walvard said this regarding Revelation chapter 17. He said, few passages in Revelation have been the subject of more dispute among scholars who have attempted to interpret them than Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 is filled with symbolism. Remember this, ladies and gentlemen. I want you, I, I, we've said that and we've seen that throughout. Every chapter, I guess, pretty much, every chapter has some type of symbolism. And uh, I want you to remember this. Symbolism does not mean that, uh, that it's not true, okay? I think here's the way I, here's the way I put this. Here's, here's a statement. God uses symbols that are not necessarily literal to teach us literal truth. 
So some of the symbolism in there, while, while it may not be a literal thing, a literal, you know, beast with four heads or a sea of glass or, or whatever the case may, may be, the symbols may not be literal, but they're used to teach us literal truth. It's important that you remember that. Now, I, I want to begin uh, this morning with kind of giving you an overview of this section. Revelation chapter 17, 18, and 19 is kind of a, a section that, that works well together. I want to give you kind of a, a overview of that. I think there's some blanks on your outline in the back. If you'd like to fill those in, uh, please feel free to do so. Um, but uh, here's basically what it looks like. Revelation chapter 17 is, uh, basically records the religious, we find that the religious system is judged. That's what we're going to find in Revelation chapter 17. By the way, we're not going to get through Revelation chapter 17. They were not even get through half of it, but I hope to do it in two weeks. Uh, so just so you know ahead of time, this is, this is basically a two-parter. Uh, but Revelation chapter 17, the religious system is judged. Revelation chapter 18, the political and economic system is judged. This is during the tribulation period. And you're going to see this come out as we get into Revelation chapter 18. But the political and the economic system are judged. Remember, we've looked at those, how closely those two are tied. And then in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ returns bodily to earth. He establishes his kingdom on this earth. And Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all personally judged. So 17, the religious system. 18, political economic system. 19, the establishment of, of, of Christ's kingdom and the judgment of Satan, the Antichrist, and uh, the false prophet. Now, Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. We won't get that far uh, as we break it down this morning. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. You remember those from chapter 16? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains 
on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Okay, that's clear. Okay, uh, let's see what we can get done here. Uh, Revelation chapter 17. Uh, Let's kind of jump into verses 1 and and 2. Verses 1 and 2 open clearly with uh, this invitation that that John is receiving. You can tell by the language that there's kind of a a transition again in the scene. And we've seen that several times throughout the book of Revelation, these transitions. Sometimes in his vision, John is is, uh, in heaven. Sometimes he's on the earth. Sometimes he's in the air. Different places have taken place. And and clearly a, a transition is taking place again as one of the seven angels. We don't know which one. It doesn't matter which one. One of the seven angels that held the seven bowls that were poured out in chapter 16 uh, comes now to John and invites him to come with him. uh, And he basically says, come here and I will show you. And here's what he says, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, let me just say this to you. If I offend you this morning with my language, um, then I do. (laughs) Um, But I'm just... The judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Our English translation, we kind of sanitize that, to tell you the truth. We kind of sanitize that verse. In the original language, um, it reads, Taste pornace, taste megalace, the whore, the great, or the great one. The whore, the great one, is the way God opens this thing up. He's invited to come and to see the judgment of this one who sits on many waters. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you may remember that we came across this and we saw that almost always when, when water or seas, oceans, whatever, are, are used in, in prophetic scripture, they almost always represent uh, a mass of humanity. They almost always represent nations or tongues or, or people groups, and that is the case here. Verse 15, we're not going to get to that. We read it a minute ago. We're not gonna, well, we didn't read it, but verse 15 makes it very clear that that's the case here, that it's referring to many, sitting on many waters refers to the nations, the ethne, the ethnic groups of the world, the, the countries, whatever they were, that, that this woman, whoever she is, this harlot, this prostitute, this whore, is, is, is overseeing or controlling or having dominion over many peoples, many nations of the world. Verse 2 makes it clear that, uh, that the kings, the, the, the leaders, the rulers of the, those nations are, are caught up in this as well. That they are um, drawn in, enticed by whoever this is or whatever this is. And that they are led into this and that their people are led into this as well. They are made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Verse 3, as we begin to get into the meat, really the meat of this text, it says, He carried me away 
in the Spirit into a wilderness. Now, um, in the Spirit simply means that this is a vision. Remember, physically speaking, John is where? Somebody tell me, where's John right now? I mean, in the writing of this. He's on the island of Patmos, uh, off, off the coast of Greece. He has been sent there. He's been in prison there by the Roman government to keep him from basically being used by God. <laughs> uh, so he, he's been sent. So physically, he's on the island of Patmos. But in the power of the Spirit, he is given this vision that takes him off into a wilderness. I have no clue, really, as to the significance of, or if there is a significance of the fact that he's, that he's taken in this vision to a wilderness. The word uh, simply means a desolate place, a, an empty place, and there may possibly be meaning to that. But what he sees there is this woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. So, uh, so he's invited to come see the judgment of this prostitute sitting on many waters. And as he's carried away into the wilderness, he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. So here's the first thing that you and I need to know. You need to understand that the woman sitting on many waters... The, the harlot, the adulterous woman sitting on many waters, and the woman sitting on the scarlet beast are the same. That in the, in the, uh, the, the vision that God gives to John, these are the same. They are two different aspects of this woman, this thing, this person, whatever it is. And we're going we're gonna to get to that in a moment. But that they are the same. She is the harlot sitting over having influence over the nations, and she is a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, when you come to this part, beginning in verse 3, the the most natural two questions that you would have are this. Who is this woman slash this harlot? And who or what is the beast? Who or what is the woman? Who or what is the beast? Right? That would be the most natural two questions you would have. And they are the two most important questions that you would have because understanding who those individuals or those things are are key to understanding this vision that John has. You with me so far? Do your heads like this or raise your hand or do something so I know you're still awake. All right. That was close enough. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to give you the answer to those two questions and I'm going to give you that first. I'm going to give you the answer to the, to the two questions and then I'm going to go back and begin to build a biblical case for why I think that's who these, this is. And we'll build that case today and we'll build that case next week. But the two questions are what? What's the two questions? Who is the woman slash harlot? Because it's the same thing. Who is the beast uh, with the blasphemous name Scarlet Beast? All right? Here we go. The woman, the harlot, sitting on many waters slash woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Remember, this is my answer. Then I'll build a case for this. Symbolizes all the false religions throughout history, including the Antichrist false religion established during the tribulation period. We'll see that more specifically next week. But um, let, me, let me read it again. The harlot sitting on many waters slash woman sitting on a scarlet beast symbolizes all the false religions throughout history, including the Antichrist false religion established during the tribulation period at the very end of time. Now, let me stop here and say a word about false religions. 
okay? Unless there be someone here that, I, uh, that I'm offending by using that term. And quite honestly, there, there very well may be. I, I understand. It, one of the characteristics of the postmodern culture in which you and I live, I know I use that term a lot, um, and, and you say, I don't even know what the postmodern culture is. Don't worry about it, you live in it. Um, <laughs> that's like, it's just easier to answer it like that, right? That's, what, like, that's what, what God should have done, right? I'm coming back in 2012, the end. <laughs> One of the characteristics of the postmodern modern culture in which you and I live is that um, the idea that there is a plurality of access points to God is very uh, culturally acceptable. It's, very, it's a very popular position in the world in which we live in today. In other words, if, if Christianity is your thing, that's great. If, if uh, Hinduism is your thing, that's great. If it's if it's uh, Buddhism, if it's Mormonism, if wh- whatever it is uh, that, that your particular belief system is, all systems are valid. All systems are of equal value. All systems will get you to God, and all systems will get you to heaven or whatever that particular re- religion might call it. All truth is relative to your particular uh, view or position of life, and no one has the right to say that any other view is, is improper. All of them uh, have equal access and value to them. That's, that's very popular. And so for me to stand up here and begin to talk about false religions would certainly be offensive to someone who, who believes that all religions are valid, all religions offer uh, a, a, a way. The problem with that, or the primary problem with that position is, ladies and gentlemen, that God has not left that to us. God has not left it to us to to find our way or to determine the best way. He has already established the only way before the foundation of the world. And the way has a name, and his name is Jesus. Some of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said very plainly, very boldly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is a very exclusive claim that doesn't, as I've said before, sell very well in the postmodern culture in which we live. I, I know I've used this analogy before, but let me share it again. If you owned a piece of property... And you were going to build a house on that piece of property. And you were going to determine it came the time to put in your uh, driveway. To put in your driveway to your house on your land. Who should or would have the right to determine where that driveway is going to come from? Now, okay, forget governmental regulations or all that. Purely from an ownership standpoint, your land your house, your driveway, who gets to have or ought to have the right to determine where that driveway comes from? You, right? Me. If it's, if it's my land, my house, my driveway, seems to me I ought to be the one that gets to determine where that driveway comes from, or for that matter, even how many driveways I'm going to have. That, that only makes sense. Does it? I mean, does that, am I being irrational? Am, am I, really? Am I? So why do we think it unfair of God if he determines that there is only one way to his house when we think it perfectly 
reasonable for us to have that same right if it were our land and our house. Why do we think God is unfair if he determines that there's only one way to his house? Now, someone still might say, well, I, I, I don't, I, I don't care. It's, I just don't think it's right. I think if, if you're a good Buddhist, you ought to be able to get in that way. If you're a good Hindu, you ought to be able to get in that way. If you're a good Muslim, you ought to be able to get in that way. If you're a good Druid, you ought to be able to get in that way. Two problems. One, as I just said, God's not left that option open to us. He's already determined the way. And two, good's got nothing to do with it. Good's never had anything to do with it. You and I never will be good enough to earn our way into heaven. Maybe you've seen this passage of Scripture before in Ephesians chapter 2. I love the Williams translation in this. It says, for it is by his unmerited favor. That's what grace is, ladies and gentlemen. It's his unmerited. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. It's just his favor extended to you. It is by his unmerited favor through faith that you have been saved. It's not by anything that you have done. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of what anyone can do. You mean not a Buddhist? No. Not a Hindu? No. Not a Baptist? No. So that no one can boast of it. For he has made us what we are because he has created us through our union with Christ Jesus for doing good deeds which he beforehand planned for us to do. This has always been a work of God. This has always been about what God would accomplish. This has always been about the way that God determined before the foundation of the world that you and I would enter into a relationship with him if we're going to enter into a relationship with him. So, <laughs> if it is offensive to a person, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here, and I, I appreciate you being here, I, and, and you still, you just, I don't know whether that convinces you. I don't know if the whole house thing or driveway, I, I don't know if that, that does it for you or, or, or not, but but as I've said many times in, in many different ways, ladies and gentlemen, the creator of the universe, the ruler of the universe is not an elected position. God is not seeking to please men. He is seeking to redeem men. And a repentant heart will bow before him and a rebellious heart will blaspheme his name by rejecting the gift of his son sacrificed on the cross. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. To either bend my heart and my will to him or to rebel against his will and blaspheme his name by rejecting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He's not running for office. And he's determined that this is how it will be. All right, wow. Um, let me give you the, the answer to the second question. I'm going I'm to quit here. Let me give you the answer to the second question uh, just so I can throw it out there. And as I said, we're going to build a biblical case uh, for it. But it, the, the second question was what? Remember? Who's the beast? Who, who's the scarlet beast? The answer to the second question is this. The scarlet beast symbolizes the Antichrist and his one world government established during the tribulation period. So, what do we have? We have the harlot slash, uh, harlot sitting on many waters slash uh, woman riding on the scarlet beast. So this religious system, and we'll, we'll pick this up again next week, but this religious, world religious system, the false religions of the world are riding on and we'll talk about what that means, on the Antichrist and his one world government established during the tribulation period. So we'll look more at that next uh, week and get into it more depth. I hope you can understand chapter 17 has so much symbolism in it. It's very important that we take our time slowly walking through this and discussing some of these things uh, so that we get as good an understanding as we can and then trusting God that, uh, that he's guiding and directing 
our steps. Um, let, let me just close with this. And I'll come back to the religious systems next week. But can you begin to get a sense of why God calls this woman a whore? And, and again, you may not be comfortable with me using that term, but God apparently seems to have no problem using it because this, these, this religious system, the, the religion, and I'll get in next week the history of all that and how that came, but as this false religions of the world have led billions away from the one true God, have led billions down a path of darkness. They have caused the peoples of the world in all, for all intents and purposes to commit spiritual adultery by chasing after gods that are in fact not gods at all or trees or stone idols or whatever the case may be. They are false at their very core because in essence they are, they are harlots at their core because in essence they try to bypass the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, they try and bypass the cross and that simply cannot be done. Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about false religions, does he? The world thinks there are many paths to God, but God makes it clear that his son is the only way to a relationship with him. As Pastor Clay taught us today, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well, leading millions of people down a false path. People who follow other religions are committing spiritual adultery against the one true creator God, and God's judgment will be harsh on false religion. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.